This is episode seven of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative 26, Darkness Among Light. I did not stop until I was closer to the next rock and far away from the Prince of Metal in Manganese Castle. Finally, with a small last jog step, I landed upon the next rock. Down below was still the interesting contorted land and that looked apocalyptic, although vague from this level. But now I was focused on this current rock. I was standing on the edge of a valley where, down below, was a small, ransacked town. I looked over to a nearby sign which read, Sexual Selection Valley. I was immediately perturbed by the name, and before I entered the valley, I took a moment to capture my breath. My fifth co-traveler had now died, and I was certain it was impossible to travel in Gignosco and survive. The only reason I survived this time was because of my background as a deadly federal agent, along with my awareness of Clark King's fantasy world and my desire to find Clark, which I knew would be Clark King's true core within the subconscious. Or maybe all of that didn't matter, and I was destined to survive in this subconscious by Clark himself. Down below, I watched the town and immediately noticed there were no humans here. The inhabitants were upright eel lamprey-looking fuckers with jelly-like skin, which was colored bright, obnoxious red. Their mouths were open and lacked a proper lip line, revealing rows of sharp teeth. What was interesting was that all of these creatures walked around and boarded buses, which would drive them across the town. These lampreys, or whatever they were, engaged in some kind of sexual ritual which occurred between two members of the lampreys. When two lampreys would approach one another, they would immediately bite into one another. I watched as some met inward for a kiss while their teeth churned like a meat grinder. Others focused on a different part of the body as the lampreys twisted and tied. Their eatery, or sexual act, I was unsure what it was, was held between two, although it was spread throughout the town, so much that I could see ten or twelve encounters at once. The encounters varied in time, although they seemed to commonly end when one lamprey went limp and seemingly died. The remaining lamprey would then leave the dead one, which eventually vanished as if it was never there. The whole town seemed fucked up, but I suppose for the lampreys, this existence was normal. I began walking down into the valley with a small sense of apprehension. While Clark began a series of small tributes, his voice was as cold like a grave, which his story formed an obelisk of history. Susan was a nice girl, but she was the kind of girl who didn't have too much of a personality. In fact, that was the reason I don't think it ever could have worked out between us. She was as bland as a white man's favorite food. A reserved girl who tried to hide her true sense of self for appearance. I was not a fond man of conformity. The smoke from the buses blossomed slowly while I could hear the cries from the lampreys. Their sound was a mix of sensations tossed into a blender. I could hear soft moaning mixed with anxious pain, which bubbled over time to a tortuitous crescendo. There was an ache that was both deep-seated in birth and identity, alongside Argo, which came from experience and time. Larice was fun. She was bubbly. She was the personality that Susan lacked, but... There was something about Larisse which made me question whether we clicked. We had sex quite early off the bat, too. The sex was great, but then all sex in your 20s is usually great. It's not as though sex is bad when you're young and having fun. But Larisse was all about sex and nothing about connection. She was fun, but fun grew old quickly. I was no longer at the edge of the valley, but was now entering the town. The buildings looked made out of clay. Their picturesque statue seemed forced like an apology. These lamprey did not seem focused on their setting, but upon the taste of one another. Betty was mentally unstable and was a white woman. Together, those two traits created troubles for a guy like me. One day, she'd be telling me how much she loved me and how she wanted to rock my world. And the next day, she'd hate me, hate our actions, but more so, hate herself. She took her personal guilt and shame and transfused it onto me. Thankfully, I dropped her. Last I heard, she was going to court over a boyfriend. I was doing my best to remain silent and unnoticed. The lampreys had no eyesight, and I assumed their senses lingered more with scent and taste. By crossing their territory, I would be playing a dangerous game. 
But the investigator in me demanded to make sure I wasn't quickly overlooking the scene on hand. Virginia and I tried fucking to create feelings, but it took a while to realize that no matter how much we clicked our parts, nothing would click between us. Virginia was smart and was going to be a great businesswoman, but she and I were not destined to be together. The buses continued to roll out. All of them were not operated by a lamprey, but moved as though on some magnetic loop. The lampreys continued to devour one another, their teeth grinding in the most perturbing of ways. The imagery was harsh, but easily understood. This was a model of sex, and of dating. The lampreys were interested in one another for the sheer personal pleasure. There was nothing collective about them. They operated at a base unit. Simone and I went out for a while, but the earlier attraction bleached out to neutrality. Clearly, we'd both rather be with someone who'd create smiles and not ordinary glances. Was this the reality of dating? Sexual tension cut into the date before any chance of a future? Perhaps we didn't want a future because we would rather be guaranteed the present. Sex was better than no sex. A first date and an only date could still open up a chance for sex as well. These lampreys would both engage in the Russian roulette action. One would survive, only one, although in some cases, neither of them did. What did this survival equate to? Perhaps the survival had to do with romanticism, while the death of these lamprey meant the death of romanticism? Regardless, the town was interesting within itself, although the town reeked of a facade. The town seemed to mimic a fake date anyway. The true purpose was not in the date or town, but was within the sex, the eatery. And what I noticed was that these dead lampreys were reborn. It took time, but they once again joined back up with the sexual rat race of their lives. I did not notice this from a distance, but now, as I moved among them, I became aware of their differences. All the lampreys had a small symbol upon their neck side. While their mouths sucked saliva, their neck was inked with shapes. I saw circles, squares, triangles, and pentagons. I didn't notice what the shapes meant, although a hypothesis formed as I continued to watch them smash themselves into each other. The two lamprey shapes would never line up. A square would bite into a circle, a triangle take over a pentagon. There was never a similar shape between two, at least in the rituals I had noticed. I was in the center of town and had yet to see a similar union begin. Now what was the statement behind that? I was too enlightened in Gignasco now to not pick up on the significance. If this valley was named sexual selection, perhaps part of the nature of this place was lack of sexual perfection. Instead of finding partners and being happy, these lamprey blindly went around their land. They only saw the impossible events and were blinded to the lamprey of their own heart of desire. Perhaps that was more of how Clark saw the world and less about how he had experienced it, but as I walked, I accidentally stepped on some goo. I didn't know what it was at first, but I realized that it was part of the saliva and body fluid which flew off during a ritual between two lampreys. I wiped most of the goo off of my shoe, although apparently that wasn't enough. I locked eye contact with a nearby lamprey who had gotten off the bus. The lamprey's open mouth seemed to suck in all the air around it and was able to sense me. I had gone undetected to this point, but the goo had given me away. The lamprey no doubt believed me prime for sexual selection. Immediately, I pulled out my gun, although I'm sure the lamprey couldn't see or realize the threat. The lamprey bounced close to me, slithering like a snake who was limited in movement. Without hesitation, I shot the lamprey. The lamprey's essence slammed into me as my body became covered in more goo. Now, all of the nearby lampreys turned to face me. I had grown desirable in their scent, and all of them were ready to feast. I didn't wait a single second, but immediately burst through the fake town. The lampreys moved quicker than I imagined as they swarmed through their town and after me. The chase brought even more lampreys on. I tried not focusing the lampreys behind me, but a couple of them got too close for comfort. I shot the ones that got close while running, while a couple lampreys got warning shots. The fallen brethren were subsequently eaten by some of the pack, although the majority of them continued to chase me. I was the golden goose, and they wanted the prime rib I could offer. I used one of the buses as leverage, avoiding the bus and having it knock down a few lampreys for me. I crossed a couple green yards and used a couple homes as leverage. The interior of their homes looked plain, basic, and unpersonalized. It was as though the homes were up for sale and thus needed simple stylizations so they could be later sold. Finally, 
was at the edge of the valley. I could see the Magnanese castle and knew that that was an immediate no. The lands down below and to the far left seemed too removed, and so I'd have to make my way now to one of the two small rocks to the northwest. I had taken too long to make a decision, and a lamprey had bit into the side of my chest. I could feel the teeth sink into my skin and dig into my muscle and body for fluid. I could not tell if this was sex or eatery, but I did not wait around to ask. With two quick strikes, two bullet slugs entered the lamprey's red flesh, which immediately crumpled to my side. The teeth unhooked themselves from my skin, and I immediately stepped off the valley and into the open void. I was out of the valley, although injured with no idea what was going to happen next. I heard the grinding teeth of the red lamprey. No doubt, with me gone, they turned upon one another. They ignored their akin in an effort to taste flesh, which would bring them a similar result as many times before. My injury did not look frightening, but felt like death. I tried running, but I was barely able to move, so I slowly walked, using the remnants of my t-shirt to hold my injury together. In the distance, I could see the nearest rock. The first thing visible was a shiny neon burger, followed by lights. As I moved closer, I realized the small rock was some kind of fast food joint. Without question, I could see the large line wrap itself around the building as Gignosco once more turned to night. I stepped on the rock after what seemed to be hours of traveling and stepped inside, my injury having bled through my shirt. Chapter 27. Me Pardon. The line for the fast food restaurant was long and unmoving. Each individual looked like a zombie who had returned from the grave for a greasy burger and fries combo. The line looked saturated and bleak, especially in contrast with the thick layers of neon which blanketed the restaurant. I could make out the name of the place, Ricky's. I didn't know whether or not that name had significance, although I was certain it did. The grimy-looking windows were half-covered by posters which read off deals such as the three-for-five, the new dollar menu, the seasonal milkshake flavor, and a poster specifically dedicated to their chicken crispers. The line was large, wrapping along the building like a wall. There was some kind of mulch shrubbery on the sides of the building, a drive through which was impossible to utilize because there were no cars, and a parking lot, also empty because there were no cars. I scooted past the wall of people and entered the establishment. The floors of the fast food joint were grimy tiles where dirt, grease, and rubbish made their home beneath the tar-black cracks. The top brown surface looked mopped, although it was not appetizing either. The booths, tables, and chairs were made out of hard plastic and coated with the cheapest cushioning. They were not made to be comfortable or fashionable. They were invented to be sturdy and durable. Each table and chair was filled with human beings who slowly ate their meals. Fingers gripped fries, which took a minute to eat individually. Burgers hung in the fate of hands, which barely moved, while soft drinks sweated out their coldness while going unsipped. The only sound came from eating, and that sound was soft anyway. There was no conversation, no heavy breath or excitement. All of it had been sucked up and placed into a black hole. A couple employees milled around, and they were just as lethargic as the customer base. All the employees wore black pants and black shoes, along with a bright orange polo with the logo for Ricky's, which was the establishment name in a simple swirling brush font. One employee was holding a mop and was mopping at a centimeter per second, while another was slowly carrying trays of rubbish, while two tables slowly cleared out in slow motion. Another employee was restocking at the fountain drink station, while two men refilled their beverages. Even the soda came out of the machine at a slow speed. Perhaps only drops appeared to coat the glass underneath the machine at one time. I went up to the employee at the fountain drink and showed her my wound. I need help. I was injured, I informed as the girl slowly put down the straws she had been refilling and looked down at my wound. Her face slowly lit up with shock as she then raised her face to my own. The whole affair took like at least a minute, although for me it seemed even longer. I was used to the immediate reaction and response and this was anything but... I'm so sorry, the woman spoke, her voice like gravel trudging underneath a snail. Are you okay? She wasn't getting shit done for me, so I immediately walked up to the main order counter. The menu was displayed on the wall in slow flickering panels, which demonstrated the vast amount of offerings one could choose. Burgers started off small as meat on a bun and escalated into bacon cheesy and loaded options. Fries were made with the best salt available, while milkshakes appeared in all forms of neon possible. There were salads, each looking incredibly unhealthy as they were laden with terrible offerings. 
There were four registers, each man with a slow employee who was inputting orders from an even slower customer. The customer would send out their order like a child trying to pronounce each syllable with heavy phonetics concentration. I'll have the double bacon cheeseburger deluxe with large fries. Would you like a fountain drink? Yes. This only exchange took a minute, and the affair wasn't even done. The shiny rock currency was exchanged, and the order was finalized. I decided to walk around and enter the back of Ricky's. The employees looked shocked, although it took a while for them to register my notice. My body was dried and scabbed up, the injury having ceased. I was feeling better, but I would love a first aid kit. I passed through the fryer and food preparation stations, all filled with employees moving at glacier speed in their obnoxious orange uniforms, which reeked of prison gear. I moved past them all and entered what appeared to be a break room. There were two tables and chairs and no employees currently on break. The time clock and time cards looked undusted and unused as if nobody had used the system in a long time. There was no food or drink back here, although there were a couple of posters about cleaning and choking procedures on the greasy white walls. Up on the far wall, there was a first aid kit and I pulled it down so I could begin patching myself up. I was scared of failure after graduation. I was able to get hired in my hometown outside D.C. in the same technological firm I had worked for four years previously. It was a good job, but I wanted to aim higher. I wanted to be a captain of the industry, more so for the government. My father had, and at that time, was still an important government man. The pay was decent, but the benefits would be great. I'd have to work hard to get the government job, and even then harder to achieve and advance. For now, in the postgraduate 1992, I seem to be doing decent. But I saw and smelt the failure around me. I saw peers who barely graduate high school end up working away in jobs like cashiers at the fast food joint. I saw peers graduate college who'd get an okay job and would grow complacent. I had never been complacent, mainly because of my upbringing. My father raised me to be a fighter. I suppose during those years of 1992-1993, before I weaseled into a job with the government, there were many fears on my mind. But I was more fearful of failing myself than those around me. At the end of my day, I only had myself. That ending phrase really struck with me as I continued to bandage my right side. The puncture still felt as if the teeth were in them. The pain was an invasion that needed to go, but I suppose patience would have to be utilized. My shirt was ruined, but I supposed I could put it back on if I needed to. The shirt was half covered in blood and bit into. I could get away with it for now. But then again, I thought for a moment before creating a brand new shirt out of thin air. Like bullets, I could imagine things like shirts to reality in Gignosco. My bag was intact, only having survived being torn into by inches. I sat back down in the break room and tried to collect my breath. I wasn't sure what was going on in the rest of Ricky's, although I assumed that whatever was happening was moving at a slow rate. The door opened after a few minutes to reveal a man with slicked black hair and heavily focused and concentrated jungle green eyes. He wore a suit and tie and khakis, a small radio clipped on his side. The man moved normally as he closed the door and sat next to me at the break table. Welcome, the man said to me. I'm the manager, Zach. I'm Sydney. You're the only thing that doesn't move at the speed of a sloth, I muttered. What's up with that? Time moves slow here, Zach explained. You arrived when it was dark outside, but now it's almost dawn. Fuck, I've only been here for a few minutes. No, you've been here longer than that, Zach smiled. I watched you this whole time from my office. I was curious what you were doing here, especially more so with the injury and the fact that you didn't get slowed. Get slowed? Most people who come here, in fact, 98% of people who come here for, you know, a good fast food night out, but they don't realize they'll be slowed. A trip here will take weeks or months. You might even die before your order gets taken. Why do people come here? I asked. Shouldn't they be aware of the time shift? And then why can't they leave? This place draws people in. It's a poisonous siren, Zach explained. They say that some try and resist and leave, but they're frozen. They shuffle forward, reach the counter, accept their food, and then leave. And once they leave, the spell's off and their life returns. It's ironic that this fast food joint slows you down so much that it becomes the longest meal you ever had. How come you and I aren't affected? Because we aren't hungry, we don't accept this swine food, Zach chuckled. I'm not really the manager. I call myself that because it's easier. I'm just a witness, a social pursuer. I've only been here a couple weeks. I'll soon head out and find another social phenomenon to study. 
So, because I came here for help on my injury, because you came here to study people, we aren't affected. Absolutely. If you came here out of hunger, you would turn slow. What if I turn hungry right now? You wouldn't be affected because that would be your secondary mission. This place only affects your primary reasoning. Have you met people who have come here and don't get affected? Just a few. Well, they've all left soon enough, let me tell you. They don't want to get caught up into this mess. And what about the employees? <sighs> They're the worst of them all, Zach sighed. They're humans who are trapped into the repetitiveness of this job. They'll never have the chance to leave this gig because they're individuals who cannot leave the situation they're placed into. You and I, we'd be forced into working here and we'd climb the ropes. We'd escape, no matter the cost. But these employees are the kind of people that will forever be comfortable in this hellish condition. And that's more scary than this location. So what do you do? I asked. You study the phenomenon of the world? I do. Zach nodded. I've been to plenty of Gignosco, although there are some worlds upon worlds I'd yet to visit, but I plan on visiting the Outer Realm, too. The Outer Realm? I heard no one can survive out there. I can, Zack muttered. Want to see how? Sure. I watched as Zack turned to the chair next to him. Zack gripped the chair and closed his eyes. The plastic chair melted into a large chicken meal with a glass of ice water. Zack then transformed the food back into the original chair. You can make anything into food, I smiled. I should have figured. As long as there's some kind of object I'll be able to eat, Zach shrugged. It's pretty simple. Interesting. I'm getting used to this creation energy. I have a gun that works with the bullets I create. Oh, that's cool, Zach smiled. So we're like mines then. Where are you coming from? I see your injury. It appears pretty gruesome. I just got out of the valley. Oh, with the lampreys? I visited there a couple weeks ago before this place. I didn't stay there too long. It was too disgusting. What are they doing? They're creatures designed to love, but they've designed their culture so that they never do love. It's ironic, somewhat sad. Do you see the shapes on their bodies? Yes. See, likewise shapes produce love, but they've adapted to grow immune to those sense of their own shapes. They cannot sense those that are like them. They only sense those who are not like them. In an effort to find love, they destroy one another. And during the ritual, the two lamprey actually appear to inject their own sequences into each other. You see, two likewise lamprey would bond in union. Two different shapes causes death. The place is a cycle of death for love. That fake town goes unused, the buses just make them arrive quicker towards their ends, and lampreys are lucky to survive the few encounters they may. Soon they're replaced and replaced and replaced, but replaced by themselves. They get reincarnated only to do the same thing. <laughs> it's so fucked up. Worthy of a human subconscious fucked up. Well, what got you to the valley anyway? Zach looked at me, as curious as the fast food from hell that he was studying. Long story. Give me the abridged. Well, I'm doing research myself. And what kind of research? Spiritual research. Oh, I won't steal your research, Sydney. You could tell me what you're looking for trying to prove. I don't know if I should. Why? Because every time I do, someone dies. I'm placed in danger. I'm given an advantage that turns out to be another responsibility. I'm getting tired, honestly. I don't want to be seen as a savior or as a maniac. I'm just here with a mission I didn't choose but must complete. You must feel that way sometimes, Zach. You must feel like there are some things better not said. Better to be hidden than to be addressed. This feels like one of those times. You've piqued my curiosity, but I understand why you'll remain silent, Zach nodded. Your situation sounds like a pickle. A pickle I can appreciate but want nothing of. Spirits. Interesting topic of research. Where do you think I should head next? Well, have you been to the Magnanese Castle? Mm -hmm, I have. Let's not talk about it. Oh, dear. Zach smiled. What about the fountain? Fountain? It's the fourth rock that's in this section of Magnanese Castle. Ricky's, the Lamprey Valley, and the fountain. You might as well complete this little sector. It's a beautiful little fountain from what I've heard. I've never seen it yet because it's uninhabited. I'm only interested in human beings and species like the lampreys. More so humans, though. Thanks for your help, I smiled. But I think I should get going... I'm quite hungry for my next stop. <laughs> Understandable. Zach and I shook hands after I had sat up. We walked through the fryers and grills as the employees slowly recognized us. We must have looked like blurs in the corners of their eyelids. We moved past the long winding line and outside the building. A few more people had entered the line since I had arrived, and once again, it was dusk. I had spent 24 hours here, but it seemed to be at best a half hour. Nice meeting you, Sydney. If we ever run into one another again in Gignosco, that would be swell. If not... I wish you luck in your journey and life. You as well, Zach. It was great talking to you. 
Without another word spoken, I stepped off the rock that contained Ricky's and left Zach alone on the slow-moving fast food restaurant and north to the fountain. Chapter negative 28, Echelon of Beauty. The fourth rock past the post-apocalypse land below contained a water fountain. I stepped on the outer layer of the rock and walked down one of the pathways that led inside to the main fountain. Four large orange slice looking shields cover the fountain area and connected at the top. Only a small amount of the purple nebula shone down while the brass coverings otherwise formed the background. The rock was dark gold, matching the brass walls very well. The same brass was what constituted the fountain, whose perimeter featured a brass covering and floor which held in the water's contents. In the middle of the fountain was a large brass pole which was reminiscent of a needle. Upon the needle was a globe of earth. I could recognize it, although I didn't think many Gignosco civilians could. But there were the countries I was familiar with, no doubt, in their predictable time zones, lengthy transitions, and gravity. The countries were etched into the brass ball, while the top of the fountain squirted water down below it. The water covered the globe in an internal rain which dripped down towards the basin of the fountain. With all the confusion of finding the right woman, all that emotion was soon cleared with the arrival of Yvette. She was the one for which I could connect with. She was far from the vermin and unmatched tries. I knew from an early time frame that it was Yvette who I wanted to spend my time with. Her skin was like melted caramel spliced with honey, while her hair was a beautiful bounty. She had those cucumber melon eyes which toted feelings of nostalgia and primality. Yvette was going to be a businesswoman, even with the prejudice she might endure for the job. Yvette loved her career, and so did I, but we managed to love each other. I was going to be a man who needed love. Better yet, I was a human who wanted love. Some go their whole lives being satisfied with minimal love, but I wanted all the love I could. Perhaps losing my mother had forced me to realize how important other humans are. I wanted to tinker with machines all day. That was my wheelhouse. But more importantly, I wanted to be with Yvette. There was a small plaque on the fountain which read, Fountain of Yvette. No doubt this location was specifically dedicated to his wife. I didn't know the timeline. Was Yvette after college? Clearly Clark had gone on to work for the government. The six girls who Clark painted with words in the valley, when did they come into play? The timeline for the first time in my journey had become a little vague, but I suppose Clark was no longer a child who went in one direction. Life was beginning to adultify, and many veins seemed to be running in sync. No doubt the dating complications and the feeling of failure had occurred at the same time. Indeed, the Fountain of Yvette came after the stories within the sexual selection valley. I wondered if I had been driven into the most accurate order so to understand Clark King. Right now, Clark was probably about 24 or so. I was probably halfway through the inner realm which appeared to be the major truths and situations which shaped Clark. Before I could muse anymore, I heard a small thump from behind me. I turned around to find some kind of cartoon-like dragon. He looked realistic, although he was made to be goofy. His stomach and underbelly was scaled, yet in a demure tan white, while the rest of his scales were light green. His eyes were large and warm, while his snout and jaw appeared only able to nibble at meat and not actually tear into a human being. The dragon's wings were small and appeared actually unable to carry its own body into the air. Its talons also appeared dulled, while its large tail moved like a dog wagging for a snack. Why, hello there, the dragon chuckled. His voice was light and fluffy and slightly feminine. Welcome to the fountain. Who are you? Oh, I'm Drackle, the dragon smiled. I'm the caretaker of this fountain. I make sure it looks good and that nobody messes with it. Have people messed with it? I asked as Drackle nodded. Of course they have. People love the tear-down beauty. Who are you? I'm a mere traveler named Sydney. Oh, I love that word. Not as much as I love the word Yvette, but pretty close. Sydney? 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 Oh, it's a beautiful name. Thank you, I nodded. What do you know about Yvette? Well, I know she is the woman of Clark's dreams. You're familiar with Clark? Oh, yes. He's the one who created Gignosco in this fountain. I have him to think for my fountain, don't I? You do, I shrugged. So you've been here since the fountain was created? Since the beginning and end of time, Draco cheered. This is my job and I love it so. You said Yvette is the woman of Clark's dreams. 
Is Yvette like Clark or is she a regular human? She is neither like Clark or is she just a human, Dreckel argued. She lives there. Dreckel extended on his taloned fingers and pointed at the globe. I watched Dreckel point to the earth. Do you know what that place is, I inquired, wanting to know if there was a connection for Dreckel. All I know is that Clark is from that place. Is Yvette from there too? Yes, he loves her so much that he'd be willing to do anything in the world for her. Anything in his first world and in Gignasco. Nobody's told me about Clark's world. Because not many people know. I only tell you because you have something special in you. Dracul, do you speak to Clark a lot? Yeah. He whispers in my ears and tells me stories of his love for Yvette. What has he told you? The first time they met, she was wearing a floral blouse at a bar. They had mutual friends. This was when Clark was working with computers and she was working with numbers. They talked and found a common bond and went out later the next week for an official first date. A month later, they were together. Dreckel was the first person, or in this general case, creature, who saw Clark for more of a human than a god. Dreckel didn't appear to fully understand the situation, but I was able to connect the dots. I knew the world upon the needle was an artistic rendering of the real earth which lay outside of Clark's head. I was fascinated that Clark would confess to this dragon about his life with Yvette. That's a great story. Thank you, Dreckel grinned, revealing a toothy small grin. Do you know about the code or lavender? No. What's that? Don't worry about it. Okay, Sydney. Well, I need to go. I sighed and looked out to the Gignasco behind me. There was nothing else for me here, or at least it seemed. Thank you for the story, Drackel. I appreciate it. What? You can't go. Drackel's high voice seemed to cut low with a quick snap. I was thrown off by Drackel's tone and demeanor. The nice dragon had seemingly become filled with aggression. Why can't I go? You need to stay longer and appreciate this place and its beauty. I do appreciate it, but I must be leaving. I turned around and began walking to one of the exits. Before I could leave the small fountain area, Dreckel appeared in my path and blocked it. I told you that you couldn't leave, Dreckel barked. His voice was now growing, as was his body. I was her beast if she needed it. That was the beast when she didn't need it. Anything which threatened her threatened me. Our love was growing strong, but I was far from letting any small obstacle get in the way of our union. I would have fought armies for Yvette, would have cut off my own arm. Love does a spell on a man. It can destroy him, build him, or otherwise encapsulate him. Was Clark referring to Drackle during this intermittent speech about him becoming a beast for whatever threatened Yvette and their love? Because I wasn't even threatening Drackle, I just wanted to leave the fountain. What's your problem? I'll leave if I want to. You can't leave. Why would you want to leave? How could you leave Yvette like this? Where's your decency? None of this is logical, Drackle, I spat. It's a fountain. What do you expect from me? I thought you got it because I thought you were the one to understand. You do not understand, Sydney, because I am getting so enraged, so deranged. Dreckel sounded and was shaking like a computer who had been doused in water. With a singular roar that slit like into a chorused effect, Dreckel's body began changing. His goofy cartoon features grew intimidating and scary. His face morphed and his jawline alone looked deadly. Spikes shot out of his back while true wings grew out of his backside. His scales looked like armor while fire spat out of his roar and into the sky. I didn't know how it had happened, but I was afraid I already knew what was going to happen next. Drackle immediately charged at me and I dodged. My hand went into the bag on my backside and I pulled out Helena Price's sword. Drackle turned and let out a stream of fire which I promptly avoided. I came close with the blade but the metal was fickle. Before Drackle could attack, I moved backwards and avoided the blow with his tail. Drackle spun into the air, the wingspan almost 40 feet. From the air, he released fire, which slammed into the rock below. The fountain was so far untouched but was indeed threatened by the flames. Drackle landed on the ground again, and I immediately took a strike forward. My blade cut into Drackle's belly to produce a small blow. It was nothing major, although it was a start. With a single movement, Drackle whipped into me using one of his arms. I immediately flew backwards and slammed into the brass circular piece. Drackle opened his wet jaws, and more flames spilled out like cotton candy fluff. The twirls and fibers sprung through the air as I rolled to my left-hand side. With my sword ready, I came forward and swung thrice. Only one of my swings came to fruition. More darkened blood spilled out, although Drackle was far from defeat. 
I pulled back my blade, which saved me as Dracul's left hand tore downwards. The claws clashed with the metal before Dracul pulled them back to rally once more. I wouldn't let the dragon get away with this plan, so I backed up. Dracul swiped downward and I was able to cut off his left hand. The left hand fell to the rocky floor outside of the fountain, laying like it was some beef steak ready to be placed on the grill. Dracul roared! his pain and anger swelling further as his roar turned into a flamethrower. I dodged most of it, although some of the small flickers of fire singed my right arm. I could feel the tickling burn and was thankful it was a first degree, potentially second degree, and nothing too serious. Since its transformation, Dracul had not spoken a lick of English or any language outside of his roars. I was not sure if this was because he was unable to or simply because he couldn't. The fight continued as I wondered if Dracul's speech and reason had been substituted for power. Was I still seen as Sydney, or was I just an enemy in the eyes of the morphing dragon? I used the fountain to cut across space, which caused Dracul to roar and spit out more flames. I was currently winning, but I wondered if there was a way to speed up my win. Dracul chased after me, his flight coming in handy as he tried to rise above me. But the height wouldn't matter for him in the end, even as the fountain of Yvette lit alive with warmth. The fight continued for a while, and I could tell that both Dracul and I were tiring ourselves out. Neither of us had any more stamina left within. All the fire had gone out, for nothing had caught a flame, nor had morphed. The brass within and around the fountain looked just the same as I had entered. I was worried that Dracul was going to destroy the fountain, but it seemed that the fire in Dracul's energy was only harmful to those who threatened him, the fountain, and their love. Once again, I stepped forward with my blade and swung. This time, the raging skill carved deep within the dragon's underbelly. The blade within the stomach was like a knife, gutting a melon. I pulled the blade backward, causing a few of Dracul's innards to spill out. I hadn't been trying to disembowel the dragon, although I supposedly, ultimately, valued my life more than Dracul. Dracul tumbled to the floor of the fountain. I put away the blade and looked around the fountain for one last time. I wasn't sure exactly what was next, but then again, I'm sure Gignosco would naturally order me in some singular direction. I was too focused on my thoughts to realize what was happening before me. With a single whip of the dragon's tail, I immediately felt my whole body crunch together into singularity before I was tossed off the rock. Dracul had survived to the point where he wished to damage me however he could. I began spiraling down to the vast wasteland below without control or idea of what lay ahead of me. Chapter negative 29. Existence 3. I landed with a thud on the ground of the biome, far beneath the fountain of Yvette, and stayed still for a couple of minutes. I could sense the forestry around me, the haze having slightly covered the sights of this slab of land. Upward, like four dark moons, were the rocks which contained my last four stops. Magony's Castle, Sexual Selection Valley, Ricky's, and the Fountain of Yvette were nothing more than underbelly rock slab, with the purple blotchy sky slowly lighting around me, overcast. I sat up and got a further look at the land around me. I was in a field completely untouched by humanity, but I could see civilization down the field, down a large series of hills with large forestry. The civilization in the distance didn't look right, and as my eyes looked forward, I could see the plant life had claimed the city. The city spread out down below looked as though it hadn't been inhabited for decades. The plant life which flourished over the city was not an overnight affair. What is this place? I whispered as I began to walk forward. The fallout. Richard Clark had answered for me instead of providing a convenient wooden sign. I began walking down in silence until Clark continued. The workplace would become the new school, except there was a lot more hidden effects. School had been filled with the savages who were easy to spot upon the simple terrain. But here, the terrain itself was filled with obstacles alongside the smart creatures which preyed. Co-workers are usually looking for a way to forego work, but look like they are succeeding. Some take their position as territory and do not wish to give it up, while others seek higher ground, lofty rights, and power. There were some co-workers who you'd consider friends and others who were colleague rivals. Some managed to flicker between both sides in a confusing array. I guess things were inherently like that for the computer scientists working for the government. We were the best of the best. We had to be in order to be in this business. In 1993 and in the end of the 20th century, computers were not common, and not anyone could be an expert. I had spent years developing codes and doing computer research. I could build a raw computer if I had to as well, even though my computer job with the government was more tech support. The truth is that I worked in hacking. I was a hacker for the government. 
That's what I ended up doing. The hackers besides me were the people who would prey on the weak when the opportunity arose. That's the business of hacking. You look for a way in, and once you find that weakness, you just tear into it. You gnaw and pull until that weakness becomes the existence of your prey. We just destroyed for a living, didn't we? I was now on the cusp of suburbia, houses built in fashion akin to 1950s post-World War II Americana. Pastels were faded, posted stamp yards became small jungles. There didn't seem to be any animals or life so far besides the plants. I couldn't taste anything in the air either, but figured something had driven life out of this town. I finally connected what this place reminded me of. I recollected the images of Chernobyl in my head. So was the fallout based on nuclear fallout? All of this imagery came from a dog-eat-dog culture at work. I didn't enter any of the houses, but I assumed that they were all decorated in a mimic of the lamprey's unused homes. The streets were surprisingly decent, while the downtown district looked dark and unholy. Yet, as if drawn in that direction, I continued heading inward. If this town was occupied, I'd be heading to more populated segments, although in reality the population was not going to grow in this space. Work wasn't as bad as perhaps I make it sound. I remember my colleague Jerry, who implied that I wasn't good as he was. It was bullshit. I was among the best. My boss would always say so, but being pivoted against one another meant that we had to fight. Jerry ended up doing well for himself, although while I became one of the government's best hackers, he ended up going off to teach at university. Some people can't last too long in this business. As much as Jerry was good, he was unable to get past the fact that sometimes we had to do fucked up things. We would spy on individuals, break into people's material, and begin security codes to protect America. Codes to fight on behalf of America. We were the security breakers, the security makers, and the behind-the-scenes soldiers of early-age computer warfare. We did not send bullets, but we sent data bombs and missiles of viruses. I was one of the few soldiers left from my time period coming into 2016, before the incident that was. By incident, I assumed he meant how he had received a coma. Considering it was eight months prior to September, I assumed January 2016 was when Clark King had slipped into the unconscious state he was currently in. This conversation had so far been the longest monologue Clark had shared with me. Granted, this current little world had been the most intricate I had come across. Granted, certain biomes were longer and larger, like the Awakening Jungle and the Feral Mountains, but those biomes weren't as complex, and were the same patterns repeated throughout their lands. The fallout here had turned a city into a contemporary forest. As I got closer, I realized I could see a thin smoke trail, which indicated there was a nearby camp. I was curious to who or whom might be behind the fire. I would need to be careful, but I was all the same curious. A couple of buildings in the downtown district had fallen over, and so I climbed the puzzling rubble in an effort to continue towards the campfire. A while later, I was through all the shit and was on top of one of the small skyscrapers. Down below in the middle of the street, I could see a singular old man. He indeed had a campfire and a shelter as well. Plenty of supplies were within his enclosed space. Two fallen skyscrapers formed back walls while the old man had set up small blockades to wall in his territory. I decided that the man didn't look dangerous, so I wanted to approach. After descaling some of the downtown infrastructures, I arrived at the edge of the old man's place and called forth. Hello, sir? I cried out. The old man was sitting at the fire and immediately made eye contact with me. Ah, it's been a little since I met another around here, the old man smiled. Come join me by the fire. I'm Sydney, I muttered to the old man. I'm Jalea. Jalea had long white hair which flowed down his backside and was capped with a cowboy hat, which didn't make Jalea as country as one would expect. Jalea wore comfortable-looking sweatpants and a sweatshirt, no doubt choosing comfort over fashion during his lone stay. He appeared happy, and I wondered if senality had duped over his personality. But Jalea seemed otherwise clean and healthy, considering he was living out in the open, abandoned downtown area. How are you? Today went well. Silent, but well. I imagine you must be used to silence if you decide to live out here. Of course, Jalea nodded. You're a traveler by the looks of it. I am. I nodded as Jalea eyed the rip and scabs provided by the lampreys and the burned arm I had received from Dracul. You have many injuries. Do you need some healing lotion? I should be okay. Well, the offer still stands. Jalea shot me a genuine smile. Do many people come through here? I wouldn't say we're a tourist location, but some humans and creatures become intrigued with the fallout. 
What happened to the fallout? I only have found a story which I have no idea of its validity, July sighed, as he clearly wished to know the truth. I'd be willing to share the tale with you as long as you do keep in mind that it could be fiction for all we know. Absolutely. I'd love to hear the story. Okay, then. Well, a long time ago, the fallout had a name. The kind of name you'd actually name a city after. But since the incident, this land has only and will forever be known as the fallout. Back then, the city was bustling. It was filled with happy adults and kids who worked, went to school, socialized, and actually lived. Social ills were almost extinct. Happiness was beyond the norm, but was almost an expectation. People lived long, happy lives here. Some people were born here and never left. The city was great in many ways, especially in pushing the boundaries, trying something new in the overall advancement of the human race and of the world. So in part of that advancement, nuclear technology was crafted, created, and tested, but nuclear energy was new, and nobody knew how volatile it would be. When the cores went off, it affected the entire slab. Everyone evacuated before the nuclear energy made them sick. Life that remained suffered for it and perished, and since then, the fallout has remained. Why are you here? My ancestors lived here. I've always lived here. I feel as though there should be one life within this place, even if it's a silly old man like myself. You're not silly, I muttered. I can't believe people just threw everything away. But in their eyes, it seemed worth it. We're a risk-taking species. Hell, anyone with logic is a risk-taker, because having to think through your actions creates scenarios. Clearly, it wasn't worth it, but hindsight is twenty-twenty. Otherwise, when we're looking ahead... We're bound to be blind. Are you a spiritual man? <laughs> I find myself to be, yes. What are your opinions on Clark? Clark is the one who got us here with his powers. I've heard them dubbed as Lavender, but I've been told there's other names for this power. Lavender is the title open to the public, I suppose. I, I believe in Clark. Where do you think Clark exists? I think he exists in another realm, outside of Gignosco. Jelia confessed. His eyes glossed over and his jaw opened partially. But I think Clark is too powerful to just casually exist in Gignosco. Why do you ask such questions? I'm trying to find Clark in an effort to save Gignosco, I explained. I want to help so many places which find themselves in dangerous situations like when the fallout was nuked. Finding Clark, well... I admire your tenacity and so far dedication. But what makes you think he is findable? What happens when you explore the ends of Gignosco and come up empty? When will you stop? I'll stop when I'm dead or when I found him. <laughs> your bravado was tempting. Tempting in the way that I'm triggered to believe you'll find Clark. So many things are up for grabs within Gignosco that I cannot tell which way you'll fall. Do I have to fall either way? Jelia laughed at my comment before looking at the fire in front of him. I could feel the warmth coming forward onto my friend's side. Fallen isn't exactly a bad thing. You know that, right? I guess I do now. Silence spread between Jelia and I as the only ambience was the crackle of the bonfire and the dancing of the wind. Up above, a singular bird flew by and squawked, bringing both Jelia and I to life. The bird had been the third animal currently confirmed within the fallout. We both seemed to stir to life with the reserved hope now feeling stronger. It wasn't a hope dedicated to me finding Clark, but a hope dedicated to the continuing betterment of life in general. Or at least that's what I got out of it. Jeliah invited me to dinner, which turned out to be the most interesting meal. Jeliah had cultivated a large garden in the suburbs, and his diet mostly consisted of fruits and vegetables, along with whatever canned goodies he could find that were still edible. Most of the food discovered were perishables, which would cause more harm than good. After dinner, the sky became darker again, although July had a few candles which he lit up. Where are you off to come morning? July questioned. You can stay here as long as you need to. I'm not going to kick you out, but I think I know you enough to believe that come a new day, you're going to want to keep moving. You're right. I sighed. I have much of the south to see, so I guess I'll head west. Oh dear. You're heading west. July looked concerned as I cocked my head in confusion. Why? Is that a bad thing? You'll have to see it for yourself. 
The South has a bad reputation. A lot of it is uh, more in the Southwest and the South Med. The Southeast is tamer, I promise. I'm kind of scared now. Don't be scared, Sydney. Just be aware. Jelia and I went to sleep soon after. He had given me a few blankets and I made the best I could on what used to be a downtown busy street filled with traffic and pedestrians. I managed to sleep pretty well, although I woke up with Jeliah missing. He had left a small note for me. Dear Sydney, I'm always awake super early, so I went out to get some gardening done. If you're still here when I return, then great. If not, then I wish you well on your journey. You're a strong man and I hope to find what you're looking for in your journey around Gignosco. Sincerely, Jeliah. The note was very kind, and now I was somewhat sad that I'd be leaving. I quickly left the downtown area and returned to the suburbs. I followed them west until I was on the edge of the rock. This time across the way, I could see fields and fields of food and the white, small mansion at the front of the fields. I crossed the void and twisted 90 degrees in a natural way. Now from this direction, the lands that I had previously been on looked twisted. I was still not used to the simple way one could just shift their degree direction, but I ignored this and continued onward. I was standing on the edge of a field between two large oak trees. I could see the lavish white mansion filled with trimmings and layers of wealth. There were plenty of green gardens and flowers while a soft heat with confusing origins began exfoliating against my skin. Birds whistled show tunes like something old out of a Disney movie, while carts and carriages were filled with crop. The fields were currently toiling with workers, although something seemed off about them. I wasn't sure what it was, but I didn't have time to dwell on it any further as I was spotted. Well, well, well. What do we have here? A Southern American dipped voice cried out. I turned around and stared right into the face of a woman with bright orange, yellow, curly, wavy hair and blue eyes. She wore a button-up with a suit and a thin black tie. Her sharp jawline went well with her high-knee boots and her polyester pants, which hugged her body. Behind her, dressed in nothing but rags, was a black man and a black woman. The two lackeys looked scared, both shaking in fright. I couldn't tell whether that was because of me or because of the ginger woman in front of them. I'm sorry, I apologized. I was traveling, and I wasn't sure where I was at. Mm, I guess it's all right, then, the ginger woman chuckled, extending out a soft porcelain hand from underneath her baby blue suit coat. My name is Miss Shelley, and you're on my plantation. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...